The following is a sermon from Pastor Timothy Borman and Sure Foundation, a church located in Woodside, Queens, New York, the world's most diverse community. For more information and for more audio content, go to sure-foundation.org. The Holy Gospel for this fifth Sunday in Lent comes from Mark chapter 15. And for those of you who are here, you're welcome to follow along on the sheets in front of you. And if you're at home, pull out your Bibles. We're going to read the entire Passion lesson together, but we're going to really focus in on and go through almost systematically right in a row, verses 33 to 39, or the death of Jesus. And as, we, as I read these verses, I am going to pause when the evangelist Mark announces the death of Jesus. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him. They then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him, and when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last.
The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Some women were watching from the distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day. That is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. Suffice it to say that The centurion in our lesson didn't get to know Jesus over a cup of coffee. In fact, he he didn't get to see any of the extraordinary life that that the religious leaders and the disciples had had gotten to see up close and personal. He, he, He didn't get to see Jesus heal the sick. He didn't get to hear Jesus say to Lazarus, get up, and then... Lazarus rise from the dead. He, he didn't get to, do, to see Jesus do this verbal battle with the religious leaders of the day. He didn't get to sit with Jesus night after night after night and hear His teaching. He didn't get to see Jesus transfigured on the mountain. He didn't get to see any of the extraordinary things that Jesus did during His life. None of it. And yet, in, in what seems an incredible paradox, the centurion has the very best confession of faith of everybody with the exception of Jesus in all of God, Mark's Gospel. He, he, he gets it. He, he comes out with it after only six hours of seeing and knowing Jesus. He didn't meet Jesus over a cup of coffee. He probably met Jesus. Think of it. Supervising the soldiers putting the nails in his hands and his feet. But seeing how Jesus died, he comes to this grand conclusion, surely this man was the Son of God. And the spiritual earth beneath him trembled and shook. I want you to be shaken this morning. 
I want you to be truly spiritually shaken like the centurion was just at seeing how Jesus died for you. And as we come to the close of seeing Jesus die, I want to give you two massive implications for what this means as you stand there shaking. Now, if you want to see how Jesus died, we got to start with verse 33. We have to start with the darkness. That's what Mark does. Look at verse 33 with me. He says this, At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. God turned out the lights. You can think of it, this isn't darkness at 8 a.m. This isn't darkness at 3, 3 p.m. Or, or 6 p.m. This, this is darkness at noon when the sun is supposed to be shining the brightness. And by the way, this, this, this could not have been some kind of natural accident. This, is, this isn't an eclipse. Couldn't be. This is, this is the time of the Passover when, when there would be a full moon. This isn't like, like a forest fire nearby that sort of blocked out the sun for a little bit. Or isn't, this isn't some kind of storm that arrived for just like 20 minutes and then, and then downpoured over Jesus. This was an unnatural God turning out the lights. And you got to think of this. This, this is a darkness that, that light was not piercing. It's not like God turned off the light bulb of the sun and all of a sudden people like flicked on their cell phones and got out the flashlight, see? Or, or it's not like suddenly, oh, all of the street lights went on. This, this is a dark darkness. This is like, I can't see the hand in front of my face kind of darkness. And darkness did that day what darkness always does. It disoriented the people. It isolated the people. It confused the people. It left the people alone. That's what darkness does. This is the first time that we meet darkness in the Bible. If you want to rewind all the way back to Genesis, that's where darkness began. There was once a time where the world was absolutely formless and empty, and there was darkness, we could say, as far as the eye could see, but, but the eye couldn't see at all because there was no light. And then God turned on the lights. Let there be light, He said. Oh, and if a human being would have been there with it and say, oh God, light is so beautiful. We love this because darkness. Oh. If you fast forward a little bit of biblical history, God, every time He decreates, every time He rolls back the sun and turns it off in history, every single time it's a judgment. Remember the second to last plague in Egypt? We went through that this summer, didn't we? God turned off the lights because of the unbelief and the stubbornness of Pharaoh's heart. The second to last plague was darkness. For three long days, darkness over the land. A judgment from God. 
Imagine the isolation and, and the confusion and the loneliness that people experienced in that darkness. Darkness is always a judgment from God. And I don't even think, as modern people, I don't even think that we can truly comprehend this, this unnatural darkness. We can only get little tastes of it. I mean, we know that we need light. Winter, <laughs> we, have these, we have this thing called seasonal affective disorder. Like They call it sad for short, that if you don't get enough light, it affects our mood. Or even just rewind just a, a, a couple of days this week. Remember, it was, it was raining day after day after day. And, and when you get something like that, don't you get just, is it just me or does everybody get a little bit grumpy? Because of the darkness. We can only get it like on a small scale. There, there's a, a famous novelist. He actually uh, graduated from Columbia here in New York City. He, his name is Isaac Asimov. And he wrote a science fiction tale called Nightfall. And in this, this little novelette, it's a beautiful book if you get a chance to read it, he, he describes a world and what it would be like if, if all of a sudden there was an unnatural darkness. There's this moving scene in the book between, between this psychologist, his name was Shireen, and a man named Theramone. Imagine darkness everywhere. No light as far as the eye can see. The houses, the trees, the fields, the earth, the sky, black. And stars thrown in. For all I know, whatever they are, can you conceive it? Yes, I can, declared Theramon truncantly. And Shireen slammed his fist down upon the table in sudden passion. You lie! You can't conceive that. Your brain wasn't built for the conception any more than it was built for the conception of infinity or of an eternity. You can only talk about it. A fraction of the reality upsets you. And when the real thing comes, your brain is going to be presented with the phenomenon outside the limits of comprehension. You will go mad completely and permanently. There's no question about it. You see, true darkness isolates us and disorientates us so thoroughly that it just leaves us alone with our sin. In fact, hell is often pictured as fire, but it's also, also pictured as outer darkness. You're just alone. Cut off from everything and everyone, including God. Outer darkness. If you want to get how Jesus died, if you want to get what the centurion experienced that day, you got to get the darkness. You have to start with the darkness, but you don't want to stay there. Mark leaves us readers in the darkness for not just one hour, not just two hours, but three hours. We hear nothing from Mark for three hours of sheer darkness. 
And then suddenly, as we move to verse 34, we hear Jesus give this cry. And I want to read for you verse 34. He tells it this way. At three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's here. It's right here where we begin to understand why the darkness had fallen at that place and at that time. It's because judgment had not fallen on us. God's judgment for sin had followed followed only on Jesus. And Mark wants us to get that. In every way possible, he wants us to get that. You know, he, he tells us, you know, Jesus didn't just whisper it. He, he, he didn't just say it in like a normal, soft spoken voice. He shouted it. Eloi. Eloi, not just once, but twice to, so that we could feel the, the emotion and the intensity of the moment. And he doesn't say, Abba, Father. He doesn't say that at all. He says, My God. God, because we need to understand the distance between Jesus and His Father in this moment. The God-forsakenness of the moment. I mean, Mark wants to push on us so hard that, that of, of all the times in Scripture, only three times do we get Jesus saying this in His heart language, in Aramaic. He, he says it and He translates it for us. I mean, this, this moment is, is a big deal. Jesus has been abandoned by the Father. He's experienced all of the judgment of our sin in that moment in sheer darkness. There He hangs between heaven and earth for us. The darkness and the abandonment are hard for us to really get. We we can only get like a taste of abandonment in our lives. Just a taste. There was this once viral video here in New York City of, of a little boy named Alexander. The New York City Department of Health had, had filmed him being abandoned by his mother for a number of seconds in the middle of Grand Central Station. You, you can actually see him. He's just, and maybe some of you remember this, he's, he's sitting there in the middle of the Grand Central Station. At first, he's fine, but then the reality sets in. My mom just left me. And, and you can see his face, like... The, the confusion that's there. The, the sadness, the, the fear. I mean, this little boy, he's like, he's like melting down. Why in the world would my mother leave me? And then, and then there's this, this public announcement by the New York City Health Department that says, don't smoke, you might abandon your kid. Do you remember this? Or something like that. And, and New York City was rightly outraged. Like, what kind of a parent and, and what kind of city agency should be traumatizing a little boy like that? But connect that to what we're talking about here this morning. Abandonment. But not just in the middle of a train station, 
but abandonment with Jesus being stuck like a pig on a cross. And he's just left there to die. My God, why have you forsaken me? If you want to really get what the centurion saw that day, you've got to start with the darkness. You've got to hear the cry of abandonment. But you've got to keep on going. See, a few, a few minutes later, there's another cry. Mark says it this way. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed His last. So you got to understand something that, that centurions are, are professionals at executions. I mean, they, this, this guy had probably seen hundreds, maybe even thousands of cru- crucifixions, and he knew how people died from crucifixion. We know how people die. They die on the cross the same way they die in bed. We die, we die when we no longer have the strength. We die when we no longer have the strength to, to, to even bring one more breath in, and then all of a sudden the chest falls and air's expired from the lungs, and we die. There's no strength to yell. We're not in our full senses, and yet Jesus here, Jesus here, it's as if he gathers himself. He's in full control of the moment, and he lets it rip. We don't know if it's an inarticulate cry like, ah! Or maybe it's one of the other phrases recorded in one of the other Gospels. We don't know, but it doesn't matter. What matters is that Jesus didn't, his life was not taken from him. He willingly gave it for you. Of his own will, of his own volition, he just gave it up for you and for me. This is when, when things get crazy because when Jesus died, Mark says, something incredible happens. And this is what our next verse says. The temple and the curtain was torn, Mark says, from top to bottom. Now, that's, that's an interesting little detail. He could have just said like the curtain in the, in, in the temple was just torn. But he says it's torn from top to bottom. There's two truths in there that we really got to get then. First of all, it's a complete tear. It's, it's not like one of those things where you're walking along with your winter jacket and this, this nail comes along and you, and you tear a little piece of your coat. This was from top to bottom. In other words, it's a complete tear. We have full access to God through the new temple that is the body of Jesus. But not only that, it's a tear from top to bottom, not from bottom to top. See? It, as if to say, no human being was going to go in there and, and, and be able to, with human strength, sort of ascend the ladder to God and open up God's presence to everyone who believes. This was, this was a God thing. 
Like the life rushed out of Jesus' body, and all of a sudden what happens is God tears the curtain from top to bottom as if to say, I have opened up my presence to all of you who believe in the saving death of my Son. And the centurion, he took all this in. He experienced the darkness. He, he heard the cry of God forsakenness. He heard the loud shout and maybe heard secondhand about the, the, corn, the torn curtain. And he was shaken. He said, Surely this man was the Son of God. I want you to be shaken. I want to give you two ways that you can be shaken this morning. And I have a whole bunch more, but I'll limit myself for your sake. We don't need to be here three hours. The first one is a a law implication. A a man named Siddhartha Mukjeri wrote an award-winning book on cancer. It's an amazing book. It's an amazing book. He called it the emperor of all maladies. And some of you can maybe rewind to this part of American history where people were kind of flipping about cancer. It wasn't really a thing like it is today. It didn't Sure, it was bad, but it wasn't really a focus in the American consciousness. And some ad executives, he tells a story in this book, on Madison Avenue decided, this is what we have to do to make Americans wake up about the danger of cancer so it can be funded for research and things like that. They said, we need to connect this idea of cancer with a religious idea. You know what idea they connected it up with? Sin. They said, we need to make Americans hate cancer as much as they hate sin. And it worked. We hate cancer now, don't we? We really do. I mean, if you find out that you have a little bit of cancer, like just a speck, like one cell of cancer in your body, you're going to be like, doctor, rip it out. Like, take half my chest or, or half this part of my body. Just get it out of there. Excavate it out. I'll go and undergo any kind of chemotherapy. Just get the cancer out. We hate cancer. Do we hate sin like that? And if we don't, you need to think about the darkness and the abandonment and the death cry. And you need to see what sin did to Jesus. See His love for you. And then you tell me, do you hate sin? And then I'll say to you, if you're complacent in any area of your life with sin, come out of the darkness. Come on out. One more massive implication today. Jesus said this. He made a promise to us. I will never leave you or forsake you. Can't you believe that more now? After seeing that He would go through the darkness and the abandonment, 
through death itself for you? Can't you believe that now more than ever? That Jesus has brought you to the Father now and that He has accepted fully. In fact, He's torn the the temple curtain in two so that you you could walk into God's presence anytime you want. So that it could be true that when God says, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you, that you would know that to your core. So that when there's those moments in life that come and and you're just weeping and crying. God, are you there? You can know that He is. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you and He never will. Not because of your sins, not because of your loss. He'll always be there for you. And now you can even walk right into the presence of Holy God and say, Father, you got to help me now. I know that Easter is coming. I want you to be shaken like that today, just like the centurion. To be able to say not only that surely this man was the Son of God, but surely this man is the Son of God. Amen. Amen.